Hello and welcome to the Indian Ocean World podcast. My name is Philip Gooding. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Indian Ocean World Center, McGill University. Today, I am joined by Professor Francisca Fay, an assistant professor for anthropology with a focus on political anthropology at Johannes Gutenberg University of Mainz. Professor Fay earned her PhD in anthropology at SOAS, University of London in 2017. She has since published her first monograph, Disputing Discipline, Child Protection, Punishment and Piety in Zanzibar Schools in 2021. She is broadly interested in political processes, childhood and youth, international development and conflict, Swahili diaspora and belonging, protection and punishment, Islamic education, infrastructure and memory, linguistic anthropology, and visual research methods. In this podcast, we'll discuss parts of two of her recent journal publications, both of which were published earlier this year. The first one is called, To Everyone Who Told Zanzis They Are Not Omani, Young Swahili Speakers, Omani's Belonging in Post-Diaspora Oman, which was published in Arabian Humanities. And the second is, Kirishi Ugerabuni, In Placed Absence, The Zanzibar Diaspora Policy, and Young Men's Experiences of Belonging in Zanzibar and Oman, which was published in the Journal of Indian Ocean World Studies, uh, which is the journal of the IWC, of which I'm also the associate editor. Professor Fay, thank you very much for joining me to record this podcast. And I want to start with a very broad question. Um, your work relies to a large degree on ethnographic fieldwork conducted in 2018 to 19 in Oman and Zanzibar, as well as virtual fieldwork in 2020. And of course, virtual because of the COVID-19 pandemic and the associated restrictions. I just want to know very broadly, what did you aim to achieve in this fieldwork? Who did you meet and how did you meet them? And I suppose what ethical best practices did you employ as you did so? Hi, Philip. Thank you for the introduction. It's great to be here talking to you. So yes, over the last few years, I have conducted some ethnographic fieldwork in Oman and in Zanzibar. And maybe let me give you a bit of background to that, because the two places are, of course, connected. But I have come to them not at once, but over a period of time. In Zanzibar, I have been spending time on a regular basis since 2009, when I was actually a language student of Swahili for my first degree. And I was really involved with gaining fluency in the language by being there a lot. So some kind of ethnographic self-placement already. Then in 2012, I decided to move into anthropology and to pursue a PhD at SOAS in London, where then and I hope it's still the case, a minimum of 12 months of ethnographic fieldwork was required as part of the doctorate. And that was really what I wanted to do. My PhD research in Zanzibar then was about international child protection organizations and their efforts against corporal punishment in uh, Zanzibari schools, where I worked largely with the children who were supposed to benefit from these efforts. And the essence of that research was that I wrote a critique, and that's the book you mentioned, of these programs based on the young people's views whom they intend to help. And that work was quite separate from the questions of diaspora, belonging and absence that started to interest me a bit later on and in Oman. My research interest in Oman then grew during my postdoc phase from 2017 onwards. And I had then just returned to Germany and Frankfurt specifically after several years in London and Zanzibar for a postdoc position at the Research Centre Normative Orders at the University of Frankfurt. 
And then returning to German academia, I was told that in Germany, it was common and also somewhat expected of you to expand your field of research regionally, specifically um, during the postdoc years. So this got me thinking about where else, if not in Zanzibar, I would make sense, it, it would make sense for me to expand my network still and to broaden my research interests in. And Oman really was the most obvious course. It was an easy decision to settle on Oman as a logical extension of my field, because Oman was the place most of my friends and research interlocutors in Zanzibar were oriented towards in one way or another anyway, either by way of kinship connections, so extended family of different degrees, for example, business relations, with Muscat or even more so Dubai as key trading hubs for goods from around the world or work opportunities. In terms of lots of the young people I met in both Zanzibar and Oman, being very aware of the employment opportunities in the Arabian Peninsula that can be supportive of building your life by way of seasonal labor migration. And I have now spent three research days in Oman, most recently this March. But in 2018, I then went for the first time. And this was really to test the waters research-wise and to see whether I would get any far only working and speaking Swahili, but no Arabic. And funnily enough, that limitation in language skills, if you can call it that in this specific context, really ultimately was no limitation at all, but rather a helpful fact that became quite generative of meeting individuals and forming relationships with all kinds of people. People, obviously, who are all united by the qualifier of being Swahili speakers of some degrees themselves, or identifying on a spectrum of Swahili, Zanzibari, or more broadly, East African belonging. And all of these terms are, of course, to be interrogated themselves. What I wanted to achieve during these initial fieldwork periods was really to gain a sense of the questions and topics at stake in conversations that I would be able to have with Swahili speakers in Oman. So very much in the sense of how ethnographic fieldwork develops over longer periods of time, starting not with a hypothesis that is then taken to a field to be proved right or wrong, but the other way around, basically. Starting with being there and then letting the field or life itself inform the theory that is there or the, pot the potential hypotheses that are constructed elsewhere. So very simply put, I wanted to find out about the questions that matter to people and specifically to younger people who speak Swahili in Oman today. And these included questions of belonging to both Oman and Zanzibar or other East African locations and questions of absence, of having to navigate always not being somewhere when life stretches across a larger map and of Swahili as a language and the cultural practice itself, specifically from a perspective of worry about its insufficient preservation by um, different state bodies today. This then is, of course, always against the backdrop of socio-political discourses that exist on larger scales, but that are rarely sufficiently informed by people's everyday experiences on the ground. The Zanzibar diaspora policy, which I write about in the one piece you mentioned, is one of those discourses, and I'll come back to that in a bit. The people I met during my stays were really from all different walks of life and ages. Because, because I established my initial connections by way of being put up with my Zanzibari friends and families who lived in and around Muscat, 
I had quite an easy way in. And connections largely developed from there, being taken along on family visits, invited to weddings and funerals, and again and again put in touch with others through my friends and connections from Zanzibar, so somewhat um, a snowball effect. But again, in order to simplify, three of the larger groups of people I engaged with in Oman were, on the one hand, those Omanis who are often referred to and might call themselves Zanzibari Omanis, who were born and grew up in Oman to grant uh, parents and grandparents of Zanzibari heritage, and were socialized bilingually in both Omani Swahili speaking and Arabic speaking communities. And then I also interacted with many people who frequently called or self-described as Omani Zanzibaris, so people who grew up in Zanzibar to parents of Omani heritage and either frequently visit Oman for seasonal work or family visits or move, um, move there altogether at a later stage in life. And thirdly, I met many East African nationals without direct Oman heritage ties, who nevertheless come to Oman for work. For the men I spoke to, this often meant looking for work in the oil industry, and for women, frequently those who were experiences of working as house help in Swahili-speaking Omani families, or in places such as the beauty industry, for example, as Tina Painter. An important part of this ethnographic work and a frequent concern for anthropology, specifically in our politically sensitive times, is of course an awareness of and an adherence to certain ethical practices and reflections during those, those research endeavors. And for me in my research, this meant consistently thinking with a friction that exists between different anthropological positions, because again, also within anthropology, there is not only one. On the one hand, drawing on the key ethical code of doing no harm, meaning always needing to reflect on the impact that our own presence and inquiry could possibly have on the field and on the safety of our interlocutors. And on the other hand, more recent anthropological positions on ethics that argue for a need to think more situationally and broadly with doing no harm and that argue for the need to take outspoken political, public, and applied positions that make clear that anthropological research itself holds some sense of responsibility and plays a role in different fights for social justice. So really every conversation that I had or that I continue to have in Zanzibar and in Oman and that goes into the research I engage in um, needs separate assessments that, yeah, I think think these questions through. Thanks for your answers. Um, what, you actually touched on something in your answer to that question, which I like, want to push you on a little bit further. Um, you mentioned the um, Zanzibar's diaspora policy. And this is one of a couple of those um, national policies or paradigms that you draw on, on, I suppose, a more focused ethnographic research. Um, you also, in your publications, draw on the Oman Vision 2040, and more broadly, quote, a renaissance narrative of Omani national identity and citizenship that is of inclusion and unity, end quote. And I suppose what I want to know is how do these big, broad framings, Oman vision, the renaissance narrative and the diaspora policy of Zanzibar, how do these framings help to ground your ethnographic research? 
And what consequences does your research have for how we understand these policies and paradigms? Yeah, thank you for that. I guess this has much to do with the focus of my, my own research really being in political anthropology. And as a political anthropologist, I'm always interested in and understanding what this notion of politics itself means and what it does in different settings. And policies, like the ones that you just mentioned, whether they're national or global, are one of the most obvious languages of the political. So the Oman Vision 2040 or the Zanzibar Diaspora Policy are two recent examples for such contemporary policies that have political meaning and intention. And people, that is governments, international organizations or politicians, always, of course, also want to do things with policies much like what politics itself is about, about convincing, persuading one group of people of the need to believe in something and to behave in a particular way other to what they might be doing at a certain point in time. So what's interesting for me here about policies is that even though they commonly pretend to speak about or on behalf of a certain group of people, those very people are rarely ever consulted in the processes of policy making. So ethnographic data usually does not inform the making of policies. That is an in-depth understanding, uh, knowledge, documentation of what people really live on an everyday basis and experience on the ground. And this echoes somewhat what I said earlier about ethnographic work, trying and aiming at thinking from the field and deriving theory from it instead of the other way around. But policies often think from the top down instead from the bottom up. So they arise out of political and economic interests from those in power, but have frequently little to do with the lives as they are lived in certain places and social situations. And the Oman Vision 2040, for example, sets out the aim to build a society as it states that upholds the Omani identity and heritage and the culture that reinforces citizenship and national cohesion. Linked to that, the basic statute of the state does not allow for any kind of discrimination. And all of these aspects reflect some, some sense of fear that precisely this imagined Omani identity may in fact be at stake for certain developments in the world, or that a trope of inclusion and unity can only exist if multiple voices and layers of belonging, of subnational identification, remain silent or silenced in public discourse. And the Zanzibar diaspora policy, as the other example that I draw on, comes in from really the other end and claims as its own diasporans, only those who think in line with the political ideas of the revolutionary government of Zanzibar, and emphasizes in a similar way the need or a need for patriotism and political coherence. Now, this is where my research comes in and my conversations with people that in both places really showed that both these framings are not really sufficiently reflecting how young people understand these ideas of belonging and diaspora, of citizenship, of national identity and that they have long come up with more 
inclusive practices and ideas of their own. Now, if I link my ethnographic research, meaning what people in everyday life actually say about these political ideas and fantasies to these political framings at large, I think it allows us to reflect on certain terms and concepts from maybe not new, but other angles and beyond the ways in which they are used in political situations more commonly as if they only had one meaning. And this is specifically important for those in charge of making and revising such policies. So the consequences that my research may have for how we understand these policies and paradigms, maybe that we may come to see that ideas like national identity, citizenship, diaspora, mean different things to different people on the one hand, but also mean different things for the same people at different times. And that the one static meaning that is commonly utilized for political purposes is never the only one that is valid. So it's about multivocality and the diversification and broadening of understandings of things which we believe to be neutral and to already know and understand, but really only understand by by way of one specific interpretation or yeah, manipulation. Uh, that's, that's fascinating. Um, so one of the other things that your articles do is that uh, in them, you propose new ethnographic terms for understanding your case studies. And I suppose these might seem as kind of challenges to these broader, um, these broad, these political paradigms. Uh, the two terms I'm, I, I really identified from, your, from reading your work were um, post-diaspora, uh, and Kurishi Ugebuni. And I suppose what I what I kind of wanna what I want to know about these two terms is how you came to understand and use and define these terms. And also suppose considering that the Zanzibar diaspora policy, the Oman vision 2040, these have to a certain degree a global reach. Can these terms as well, the post-diaspora and Kurishi Ugebuni, do these have a applicability? Uh, outside your case studies? I suppose that's a very convoluted way of saying, how do these terms contribute to our understandings of, I suppose, diaspora and other wider terms in Indian Ocean world studies? The terms post-diaspora and Kwishi are both really attempts at simplifying or summarizing, to some extent generalizing, while still not completely um, moving beyond contextualization, those aspects of field work that can never sufficiently be represented by only one concept or one idea. But what they can do is to offer starting points to then think further or anew about certain aspects that may not have been considered in this way yet. And when I worked through existing research after going through the data I collected while I was in Oman, I started reading a lot about this idea of post-diaspora and I thought it would be quite a productive idea to also draw on in the Oman Zanzibar context and to, to bring into conversation with that setting. And in the work I engage with in my text, post-diaspora is specific for several reasons that I found particularly productive here. And this is mainly along the line of the, the work that's done in La Guerre. And what's important in their work is that they say that the post in post-diaspora is really indicative of a separate problem space, if you want to call it that. So not talking about diaspora, but about a post, a different kind of 
situation from a regular so departing or moving into a broader space from a regular usage of the term. And that is a focus on most commonly second generation diasporans and onwards. So with this focus on second and not first generation diasporans, the post-diaspora status describes a contestation against a frequently discriminatory minority status in a society about refusing old minority tropes and about empowerment and people's own understandings of being insiders too, despite belonging also amid um, or among mixed heritage groups. And these ideas are all relevant in the situations that I encountered with second and third generation Swahili speakers in Oman. And then the other concept, and you mentioned it, um, the one I work with is Koishi uh, Uraibuni, and that is a, a Swahili expression or a Swahili term. Uraibuni is the Swahili term that is often used for diaspora and is used, for example, in the Swahili version of the Zanzibar diaspora policy as a translation of diaspora, where I, in fact, first encountered it. So Uraibu derives from the Arabic Khaib, which means absence or the unseen. And Kuishi Uraibuni describes both a state of being or living in absence, missing or being unobtainable, being in a remote place or away from somewhere, from home. So it describes a state of being and a location that is relevant to many young people who organize their lives between Zanzibar and Oman. And in the literature on, on this notion, there are several other Swahili and Arabic concepts that have been uh, drawn on in helpful ways to analyze diasporic life. And these include, and I apologize as a non-Arabic speaker for mispronunciation, Al-Mahdar and um, Wahadirina, as well as Shafat, for example, in the works of Uke, Freitag, and Salim. And these ideas describe and place and non-emplace communities of migration in exile and through scattering. So in conversation with these terms that I just mentioned, I propose in my work that Uraibuni or Kuishi Uraibuni describes not a community, but rather a state and a geography by means of emplaced absence. So the aspect of not being there and especially the practices related to that is the focus of that analysis. And I think working with the terms like these can help us understand in more depth, again, what it is we are talking about and why. Is it places? Is it practices? Is it people? And how these descriptions and how all of these notions are entangled, but also uh, important to be differentiated upon. And of course, just like with the other terminology I speak to in my work, ideas like Kuishu Raibuni, living in or with absence, hopefully offer themselves also to other social settings where this angle might be a helpful take. So in short, what I believe concepts like post-diaspora and Kuishu Raibuni may contribute to our understandings of diaspora, belonging, and citizenship, to stick with these ideas, is not to move away from already established ideas, but to move with them, to expand them, to include the diversity and change that is also inherent in them, as thinking with second and third generation diasporans and thinking with diaspora, not only as place, but also as practice. And I suppose that this may also hold value for research on and with Indian Ocean 
communities on the one hand to ground research more in the present and to move it out of a dominant historical focus and on the other hand to really also move away from artificial boundary boundary drawing. Wonderful. That's a really nice and succinct explanation. And uh, I heard your uh, your apology to native Arabic speakers. I should apologize to native Swahili speakers for my butchering of Ugay Buni. Um, but uh, my Swahili teachers from my master's degree will not be proud of me. Um, in any case, what are the key themes of your, your research? And you've mentioned it several times here is youth. And you kind of argued that kind of youth's understanding of um, I suppose diaspora doesn't necessarily um, align with um, with the Zanzibar diaspora policy, for example. Um, I've wondered then. So th- this kind of kind of opens up a can of worms, I suppose. Very broadly, the very broad question is: How do you define youth? Um, and I suppose then more in a more focused question: um, What um, is the importance of youth to? Um, broader understandings of Omani, Zanzibari, diasporic relations. And are there other dynamics could be explored here as well? I suppose the one you focus on youth, but are there gender dynamics as well? would be the the main one, but maybe there are others too. Um, Maybe some reflections on on youth first and maybe um, push it out afterwards, if you you like. Yeah, thanks. That is a a key question that always also concerns me as as I think about these fields. The category of youth, or more broadly, of young people, also or connected of young people, also including children and all people that are commonly considered as somewhere on a pre-adult spectrum, has fascinated me for a really long time. And as I mentioned earlier, during my PhD research in Zanzibar, I prioritized working with children. And those children, or who would elsewhere be called young people, were mainly between 8 and 16 years old. And this was really such a, an eye-opening experience. And while, while it was really eye-opening, it was also ethically incredibly challenging, um, an incredibly challenging way of doing research because questions of consent and protection, et cetera, of course, take on a whole other meaning when they suddenly don't concern adults who can make certain decisions for themselves, but you have to think in more complex ways about the implications of certain ways of working with a different group of people. So it was fascinating because it's precisely those young people's perspectives, again, though, and their views that are most disregarded within political discourse and policy making. And surprisingly or not, even when they concern children themselves, policies, as it was the case in in the research that I did in Zanzibar, um, the policies on child around child protection were really often insufficiently working with young people and not sufficiently developed in collaboration or through consultation. So this, yeah, quite frequently set them up to fail despite the well-intentioned ideas that were driving them, but largely for, um, yeah, for, for a lack of of working with the people who are really concerned just outside of a, a regular age group that would be involved in drafting them. Now, one of the key questions in the anthropology of childhood, children and young people is precisely what you were just asking me. So how do we even define childhood? How do we define youth? What does that mean? Who is, who is meant with this term and who decides on these definitions and for what purpose? And the term youth, interestingly, for example, has a whole range of different meanings. 
And they are certainly all political in their own ways. The United Nations, for example, defines youth as persons aged between 15 and 24. But the African Union defines it as people aged between 15 and 35. So the meanings attributed to youth change really depending on who speaks and on the social settings and the status that's attributed to people within certain relations and communities. Now, in my research, I try to move away from political tools and conceptualizations that are largely born out of the so-called global north. And I thus usually tend to work with broader definitions such as that by the African Union that considers people up to 35 as youth. Um, and that was then also largely the group of people I was intending to speak to while I was in Oman. Another reason why I find it interesting to think with youth as a lens on life in these parts of the Western Indian Ocean world is the fact that there is very little research that actually engages with young people in the present there, and particularly in anthropology. So history and geography research has really dominated and in important ways the documentation of life in these fields. But more contemporary and more ethnographic approaches are really still few. So much of the existing research is oriented to the past, which is important, but what is missing to balance it out is an also thoroughly rooted take on the present as well, and one that engages in research that is also looking towards the future. So working with youth, I think, makes it possible to bridge this temporal divide and to move beyond a recounting of history and to look at what is happening now as well. Research on contemporary questions or issues is then, of course, usually also especially politically sensitive, which may be one reason for there being uh, a few works in this area. However, I do think that this should not stop researchers from imagining alternative ways of working around certain questions of the present. And one of the important aspects that a focus on youth can bring to understandings of diaspora, I think in the context of Oman and Zanzibar, for example, specifically, is that many younger people's understandings of diaspora have quite little to do with what the so-called Zanzibar diaspora is outlined as in the policy, if we again return to this political take. The views of this younger generation of Swahili-speaking Omanis and Omani Zanzibaris who I spoke with often have a different take on the idea of diaspora than their elders did. They are both critical of political exclusionary purposes that are a frequent undertone of a policy like that, and much more open to thinking about identity and belonging in more fluid, changing, and multiple terms. Gender, I think, just like age, would be another interesting lens to explore here. Specifically because, A, there are so many young women in Oman who are vocal on these matters, and B, because on a whole, and out of really out of everybody I've gotten to know so far, it is much more common that women continue to speak Swahili and uphold the Swahili-speaking practices or Swahili cultural practices uh, in the Arabian Peninsula. So it is a everything um, um, connected to notions of Swahili-ness has 
often been explained to me as really also tied to um, to women or to female characters as taking a lead in that. And I think that is um, that is quite a, a fascinating phenomenon that would definitely deserve and um, gain so much more attention. Yeah, that does sound fascinating. Okay, so one of the things you outlined very much towards the outset um, of this podcast was that you started off doing your research even as early as your undergraduate research, uh, focused on Zanzibar. And then it was afterwards that you moved to focus on Oman as well, particularly through your postdoctoral research. And that was partly because of the encouragement of what you expected to do in your institution, but also because that was a natural thing to do. Was, and there was connections that you could build, connections you could build there. Um, and this comes through in your articles as well. This, this, and this probably speaks to my, my biases as a historian as well. This, of course, makes, draws me to think about the 1964 Zanzibar revolution. And this really does provide important context for both of your articles. And I suppose I wanted to know, what I want to know here, and I'm sorry if this is a bit of an unfair question, um, how do memories and legacies of, uh, of the revolution affect your ethnog ethnographies? Um, and maybe for the benefit of listeners, um, maybe we give a quick summary of the revolution, the revolution itself, so uh, people can kind of follow along kind of a, a longer 20th century and into the 21st century uh, history here. Yeah, this is it's a tricky question. It's an important question. The Zanzibar Revolution of, of January 1964 is definitely one of the most important political events in recent history of the East African region, and it operates as you suggest, right underneath so many contexts and conversations today. However, I think there are much more qualified researchers to speak about the revolution specifically, plenty of historians and political scientists, and especially from Zanzibar and Tanzania, as well as from elsewhere, who have worked through and contextualized specifically the violent events that led up to, that took place during and that followed the overthrow of the last Sultan of Zanzibar and of the ruling Arab elite, which was largely Omani. But I'll try still to explain a little more about how this relates to the questions of my research. So one of the backdrops to my research is that Oman and Zanzibar, of course, have been linked for centuries, politically, economically, culturally, socially, and so on. And I make the point that therefore we should more thoroughly think with the two places on a continuum, on a spectrum, rather than as two separate political entities. The revolution in 64 then was a critical changing point to this long-standing relationship, leading to many people losing family members and their livelihoods, fleeing the island, and being forced into exile. The most prominent example of somebody affected by this being the recent winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature, Apelora Gorna who engages with this last link still this time in his work. I believe that it is cultural and artistic productions like his novels, for example, that are important accounts of, um, of that time that need to be read more broadly in addition to scientific accounts. If the effects of these political events are to be better understood and by way of voices that speak from within. Another example uh, I highly recommend is Amil Shivji's recent film, Bhutan Kubuta, which is an adaption of Adam Shafi's novel of the same name, and you might have already seen it, uh, which is a beautiful and important depiction of 70s 
the 1950s Zanzibar that actually led up to the revolution in the 1960s. So I really highly recommend these, these other takes on making do with this historical period. But either way, people's memories and the legacies of the revolution, as you suggested, do linger over almost every conversation I had with young people in both Oman and Zanzibar. For young Swahili speakers in Oman, the revolution is often a critical event in their family histories and defining of their own sense of belonging today. And if it hadn't been for the revolution, then many of these young people know that they would likely have grown up in Zanzibar instead of in Oman, for example, where many of their parents or grandparents relocated to either in the build-up, in the wake of the violence, or in the aftermath of the revolution in Zanzibar. And at the same time, there is so little publicly accessible information on this period, certainly neither by the Omani or the Zanzibari government, that this historical moment is frequently felt as a painful blind spot in people's sense of belonging and identity. And again, coming back to the Zanzibar diaspora policy, for example, here it is stated that one of the criteria for being considered a, a, di a Zanzibari diasporan um, is that to be con in order to be considered as belonging to a so-called Zanzibar diaspora, it is necessary that you recognize the 1964 Zanzibar revolution as the basis for the liberation of Zanzibar people and respect the laws and constitution of Zanzibar. Now, if you had a family member who was traumatized by, or maybe even died during the events of the revolution, you might be more hesitant to recognize these events as purely liberatory. At the same time, you might still identify as a part of the Zanzibar diaspora. So life is really messy and really complex. And I think these examples of, of broader political discourse and actually lived realities bring out this tension and the friction between these two um, frequently disconnected aspects quite well. Great, thank you for answering that question. I, I'm sorry if that was more biased to my to my more my interests than I, than I suppose uh, yours. Um, finally, that so one final question I want to ask about about your research um, that comes through that that we kind of mentioned right at the beginning um, is that obviously you've done a lot of um, research in um, the Western Indian Ocean world, but also um, you've done uh, a lot of um, research using social media. Um, and I'm no expert in ethnographic methodologies, but I'd imagine this is very much a methodology that is still being developed, having necessarily only begun in the mid to late 2000s. Um, so I suppose, what are the challenges and opportunities of using social media as a form of field research is one question. And I suppose I want to know how you develop such methodologies, um, particularly because I just just thinking about it, I saw this as a particularly um, novel and interesting way of continuing field research in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic um, in the last couple of years? Yes. For me, using social media as an additional way of, of doing ethnography, as you're saying, wasn't really only born out of the pandemic, but already proved to be help, a helpful way in earlier, even before COVID changed our research practices 
nevertheless, I could never imagine doing only online ethnography. It was more of an additional way of um, of making making do with certain restrictions and within ethnographic research that have developed over the previous years. So I'm not a big fan, but I do believe, and this is why I do also turn to it, um, that it can be a helpful addition in research on sensitive themes and in politically sensitive settings where you have to constantly be creative about how you can negotiate access. So Facebook, for example, and even though it's no longer a particularly popular tool, of course, with younger generations, is a really helpful tool in gaining a sense of people's different framings, the sense of our history, which we were just talking about, for example. On Facebook, there are several groups that link Zanzibar and Oman. You might be familiar with them, um, and that serve somewhat as a counter archive in which mostly older generations Zanzibaris who live in exile post historical photographs or engage in really in-depth and really, really valuable, knowledgeable discussions and memory practice about life over the past decades that often lie very far from official political rhetoric. And such kinds of insights can be super interesting additions, additional data in an ethnographic analysis of certain discourses and concepts. And in my research on young Swahili speakers in Oman, as um, is reflected in the articles, um, I relied on Facebook, but also on Instagram and on YouTube as sources of information and connection. Facebook and the conversation groups I, I just mentioned have helped here, for example, to find people who were interested in speaking to me about the themes I was interested in while I was in Oman, so mainly the um, continuation of of um, speaking and identifying as Swahili on, on the broadest definition of the term. And Instagram has been helpful in similar ways with many people actually contacting me on there to ask about the research that they heard, heard about elsewhere and volunteering to share their stories or asking to be included in it as well. So what's great about platforms like Instagram and YouTube is that they are something like a liminal political space, a space in which many people feel more empowered or less hesitant to share certain positions in their own choice language and visuals, which other spaces wouldn't make as easy for them. And that's really what I try to, to show in, in one of the, the articles, which, um, which touches on, on, uh, which, which uses a quote from a blogger on Instagram as part of the title to everyone who told Zanzi that they're not Omani, um, which, uh, yeah, which draws on examples for the need to think beyond notions of purity or exclusionary Arabness in a sense that can be hesitant to include African sociolinguistic identification as part of a sense of an Arab identity or Omani sense of belonging today. Um, a challenge of using social media, I think, as sources or as additional data or access ways is its fleetingness and the pace. Something interesting that may be uploaded today, for example, can already be taken down again tomorrow. People change their minds about things, but also about the publicity that their statements receive. So it is extremely unstable in terms of relying on it as data that is reliable. And in that way, social media um, can again be 
a highly politicized space. And this is different to working with more traditional ethnographic methods like participant observation or interviewing or the use of other printed sources, knowledge that either is or has been documented in ways that are meant to last. But in order to understand how ideas are made and remade, I believe that it can be important to also work with social media as relevant spaces of knowledge production and connection. And the fact being that it can and probably shouldn't ever fully replace the breadth that is ethnography, but can definitely add new layers to it. Yeah, wonderful. So I think it's a very exciting, the, the possibilities are exciting here. Uh, thanks for um, telling us more about that. Um, oh, I think we've got time for one more question. And it's a very broad question. And I suppose there's a chance to, for you to kind of publicize what you're working on now. So what are you working on now? Uh, and what can we look forward to seeing from you uh, in the future? Yeah, wow. Well, I'm working on quite a few things at the moment, and they all equally excite me. So it's sometimes difficult to prioritize here. What I've had my head stuck in over these summer months um, are a range of lectures and articles that can be located broadly within Indian Ocean and Swahili studies. And they all engage with feminist theorizings of the sea, then the question of dialogue as an important concept of reframing Western Indian Ocean links, the potential of approaches that center aesthetics and affect in thinking about oceanic life, and the critical role of women in past and present practices of protecting and preserving a Swahili seascape. And some of this work should hopefully be forthcoming and within the next year. And the other block of work I'm deeply engaged in is the development of a new research project on contemporary feminist politics in Tanzania. Feminism has become such a buzzword of the present moment and is now frequently and often inflationary stuck in front of more common political vocabulary in order to make ideas more marketable, but without really living up to the political important ideas that underlie the term. And from an anthropological point of view, I'm here really interested in what feminism means in the context of Tanzania. And if we speak about ufeminia or any other term that is considered as aptly describing battles for gender equality and against social uh, injustice. And I've been speaking with a range of activists here who locate themselves somewhere on this political spectrum. And I deeply believe that their perspective and knowledge production is really vital for ongoing attempts to diversify and decolonize different fields of our practice, and feminist political anthropology being one of them for sure. And finally, in the future, I would of course love to continue and to build on my research, um, the one we spoke about today, to spend more time in Oman, and to work collaboratively with researchers in Oman and in the wider Gulf region. Wonderful. These are all very exciting directions, and I really look forward to uh, seeing them come to fruition uh, in the future. Um, Francisca, thank you so much for your answers and discussing your fascinating research. Um, for listeners who want to find out more, we'll be posting some links in the description. Uh, please click on them, uh, check them out. Um, I also want to thank um, Sam Glee-Riemann, who organised and produced this podcast. 
And I want to thank you, the listener, for downloading or streaming this podcast wherever you are. Once again, my name is Philip Gooding, and you have been listening to the Indian Ocean World podcast. We would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. The Indian Ocean World podcast is produced under the Shirk-funded partnership Appraising Risk Past and Present. The podcast runs in conjunction with the annual speaker series at the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University, Montreal. Stay tuned next week for our conversation with Professor Sugata Ray of the University of California, Berkeley. The next in-person talk at the IOWC will be on Wednesday, November 9th with Professor Leslie Orr of Concordia University. Please contact the centre if you would like to attend.